or yesterday morning, a few of the, uh, I guess you could say the younger guys, and there was a couple of older guys, went and shot skeet at Watery uh, Park. There's, you can tell I'm an outdoorsman, right? I, I shoot guns, and, um, and yesterday I was joking with some of the guys. That was a joke. Yesterday I was joking with some of the guys, and um, I said, if I'm speaking loud tomorrow or scratching my legs because I wore shorts and the mosquitoes were terrible, you'll understand why. And I woke up this morning, and my shoulder was, uh, was a little sore, and so uh, I would add to that, I'm thankful this morning that I don't have a Bible as big as West Church's Bible, because <laughs> it would have been a struggle to get up here this morning. Well, this morning, it's, it's always fun to address the graduating class, and this is a, a fun class to stand up in, in front of. It's a solid group of graduates, and we're excited as a church, aren't we, to see how God is going to use them in their next steps. And I was thinking this week about how neat it is that we as a church take two consecutive Sundays to recognize two very special groups. Obviously, last week was Senior Adult Sunday, and what a, what a privilege it is to, uh, to sit and to honor um, these men and women who have been the backbone of this church and provide such great support for so many things that happen in this, on this block and certainly in this community. And then this morning, we pause and we honor our graduating class, these students who are continuing to grow in wisdom and in stature, and I think that it speaks to the makeup of this church, that we are a multi-generational church that is comfortable in its own skin, who is committed to solid biblical teaching, and certainly to dynamic worship that makes much of Jesus. And so it's a privilege to stand before you this morning and to speak to the graduates, but also to us as a church. It seems like I say at every graduate recognition service that it's a challenge to issue, a challenge to our graduates, but also to speak to the church as a whole. So this morning we're going to take a few minutes and be reminded of a few things we want to make sure that we have before we take a next step, whatever that next step may be. For our high school graduates, it's college and a career. For our college graduates, it's even more education and hopefully a career. For the rest of us, it's just tomorrow, right? So whatever that next step may be, hopefully there's some truth in the scriptures this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 3, we see Paul provides Titus with some instruction. And in that instruction, there are principles to live by. And I think there are principles that will provide a great foundation for the advancement of the gospel. And certainly that's what Paul was concerned about as he wrote this letter to Timothy. And so look at, me, uh, look at with me chapter 3. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. I love that Paul starts off, or I guess we've made it chapter 3, right? He starts off in verse 1 of chapter 3 with that reminder 
And it's a reminder that we have to be reminded of some things. I thought that was interesting this week as I was preparing. I was talking with Jennifer in the office. And I said, I wonder why it is that some things we have to be reminded of and others we don't. And so the conclusion that we came to was this. Sometimes it's just because we're forgetful. And because we're forgetful, it's good to be reminded. Perhaps, though, there are times that we're just simply not paying attention and there has to be a reminder or I think and this is more often the case when it comes to spiritual things that we become so distracted we are so easily distracted and certainly in this context by the sin right that so easily entangles so either Paul had heard that the believers in Crete were struggling or Paul just understood that they were too easily distracted and asked Timothy to give them a few reminders. In the previous chapters, chapters 1 and 2, Paul is giving instructions to Titus. And he's saying, this is how we as believers are to deal with other believers. As you're going through your normal day-to-day activities and you come across other believers, or perhaps as you're worshiping together, here's some instruction on how to treat one another, but then Paul shifts gears in chapter 3, and he says, this is how you need to deal with non-believers. This is how you deal with a pagan society in Crete. Spurgeon writes, he says, you see, they were rough, wild, rebellious people in Crete. And Christianity comes to civilize, to sober, to sanctify. To save. Paul addresses this earlier in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, that's just a fun word to say, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's a pretty harsh words for the people that made up this society, but clearly it was a pagan society, one that was. Uh, against Christianity. And so we see that Titus had his work cut out for him. Titus was dealing with a bunch of believers in a culture that was rampant with untruth and with evil and with laziness. And I think as it was for the believers in Crete, for the church in Crete, so it is for us today. We're constantly dealing with people who have opposing views. We're constantly dealing with people who who are hostile to our beliefs. It seems like it's growing more and more. Living in a world that's not our own can be daunting at times, can it? So there's a danger that as we live in a world that's not our own, as we encounter people who don't hold to the same beliefs that we hold to, there's a danger that we can uh, live in the flesh. The old flesh can kick in. And in doing so, then as believers lead us to live lives that are contrary to the gospel that has so radically changed us. It's in those moments that we're reminded that on our own, we are incapable. But we see in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God has appeared. And when the grace of God appeared, salvation and instruction was made available. And so we heed the words of Paul 
in Titus chapter three, uh, 3, and we remind ourselves to do these things. You see there in your outline. We are called to submit daily. Paul says, be subject to authorities and to be obedient. I think if you're taking notes, you can write down this, uh, these two words, that there is obedient submission. Obedient submission that is expected of us as believers. It's not a concept that gets a lot of attention today. Rather, I think it, it's quite the opposite. It seems like if you scream as loud as you can in opposition of anything, that you will be noticed. And then even more than that, it seems like you don't even have to have an educated opinion. All you have to do is be against what is established and people will listen. But Paul here urges the Christians in Crete to submit to the authorities in place. And certainly for our graduates, especially our high school graduates, and even, I guess, some of our college graduates, it's, it's, it's finally the time where we're able to get out of the watchful eye of mom and dad who have been clueless for the past 18 or 22 years, right? They have no idea what they're talking about. And we're able to spread our wings and fly and all the other, you know, silly little uh, things that we can say about finally enjoying freedom. But we laugh because we know, A, number one, that mom and dad know what they're talking about, right? But, but we also know that we'll always live under authority. There's always going to be authority over us. Paul specifically is talking about the governing authorities in verse 1. And we know that the government wasn't too keen on Christianity. But what Paul understood, and I think what we have to understand today, that just because the government wasn't too keen on Christianity, it did not lessen them as authority. And that's a hard thing to hear. But we also understand that sovereign God has placed authority in our lives. And there's not a whole lot that we can argue there. But rather, I think there is something that we should consider. And it's this question. Will I place myself under authority? Can I submit obediently to the authority that God has placed in my life? Paul writes in Romans 13, 1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which, are, which exist are established by God. Obedient submission. The word submission here is a military word. It's the act of placing oneself under the command of another. So there's a command. It's a military command. That you place yourself under the command of someone who is over you. But if you take that word and you, you kind of take it out of the military context and you come up with this definition. Voluntary attitude of giving in or cooperating, assuming responsibility or carrying a burden. And certainly all these things can describe us as believers living in a world that's not our own, but yet submitting to the authority that God has placed in our lives. Sometimes it feels like carrying a burden. Sometimes it feels like we're just kind of cooperating. Other times it feels like there's militaristic ex expectations, right, that we have to submit and fall in line. I think it's interesting that Paul leads off with this reminder. 
of obedient submission. And I thought maybe this week, perhaps it's because he wanted to ease any tension as to who was ultimately in control. That there's a reminder that God is in control of those in authority over us. And so there's the call to obedient submission. And it doesn't mean that we're silent. It doesn't mean that we can't participate. But it does change the way, I think it dictates our response and our attitude. It's almost like you can hear Paul as he's writing this to Titus. St. Titus, remind the believers in a pagan society, remind them to submit obediently for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, we move on, he says that we're called to serve always. To be ready for every good deed. This picture of readiness is, is, is a picture that, that we are prepared. But even more than that, that we are expectant. That something is going to happen. And when it happens, we're ready to go. I think there are two ways to apply this. There's active participation. But then also there's spiritual preparation. We see in Titus 2, uh, verses 11 through 14, we go back and listen, uh, listen to the words that Paul writes. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That text is a sermon by itself. But the grace of God compels Christians to do a few things as we're actively seeking to participate, as we're expecting to do good deeds. That we understand that we first have to deny the things of this world. And we are called to live sensibly. I'm one of those people that I, I think common sense is gone. It's a lost art. But yet here we see that we're called to live sensibly as believers. In a lost and dying world, we deny the things of the world, we live sensibly, but then we live righteously and godly. And as we're doing that in the here and now, we are always anticipating the second coming of Jesus Christ, our only hope. And then as we're doing all these things, we are, we are eager, we are zealous to do good deeds. We are ready to serve. And we know that it's not the good deeds that we do that saves us. I came across a quote this week that says, Good deeds are not the root of salvation, but they are the fruit of genuine salvation. Good deeds are not the root of salvation. But we as believers, doing what we've been called to do and equipped to do, serving, ready to uh, serve at all times, putting on display the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of genuine salvation. See, we serve ultimately because we understand that we have been served. I think it should be the mark of every believer, the heart of a servant. A couple of weeks ago, I was at, uh, at a lunch for some pastors and ministry leaders. And as lunch wrapped up, we were all sitting around our tables just talking, waiting on the program to begin. 
And as I was sitting there talking with the guys around our table, somebody came and took my plate and then proceeded to take the plates of those around the table. And I thought this was just some staff person and this was their job. Everything was done. They're going to come clean uh, the tables off and then the program would begin. And I looked up and the man had a name tag just like me. Found out later that this man was a pastor here in Columbia. And he was speaking later on in the program. And so I thought about that in light of what I was going to discuss this morning. I thought, isn't that interesting? That in a room full of servants, servants, that one man saw a need and got up and met the need. He didn't wait on somebody else to do it. And just that small act of kindness, that small act of service went a long way in my eyes and certainly made a lasting impression. And I thought, how often do I sit and wait on somebody else to do something? Maybe it's because I feel like it's their job. Like, I don't want to do it because that's what they get paid to do. Or maybe it's because I just don't want to be inconvenienced. Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, hey, remind the Christians in Crete To be ready to do every good deed. So there's active participation, but then I think it's important for us to look at the spiritual preparation. That our sins are confessed. To be spiritually prepared to serve. That we have have hearts of repentance. That our relationships are whole. That we are connected to the source, right? Of our power. We're reminded of the words of Jesus in John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit for apart from me. Listen to this. This is what, this is what separates us. Our deeds as believers from people just doing good things. Jesus says apart from me. You can't do anything. It's the idea that we have to be connected to a power supply in order to go, in order to keep going. So we actively participate in serving because we know we are called to serve because we have been served. But before we serve, there's a spiritual preparation that takes place, and we want to make sure that I'm doing this, not in my own power, but doing so because I know that I've been called to do it, that I'm equipped to do it, connected to the source that is... Jesus, to Titus, Paul says, remind them, remind them to be ready to serve, to be prepared for the sake of the gospel. He goes on, he says, that it's important for us to understand that we have to speak carefully. He says, malign no one, malign no one. James speaks of the power of the tongue. And he likens the tongue to that small rudder that can direct a large ship. He also describes the tongue as that small spark that can set an entire forest ablaze. He says that every species of bird, of beast and reptile can be tamed by man, but no one yet has mastered the tongue. He says from the same mouth comes blessing and curse. We worship God and we slander man with the same instrument. And James says this should not be so. 
And then we read that Paul urges the believers in Crete to malign no one, to be peaceable, and to be gentle. See, our words can be so powerful. But yet, we're so careless with our tongue. I came across this quote this week that Christians can be constructive if they refuse to be destructive. Christians can be constructive. We can do a lot as the church if there's a commitment to stop being so destructive. Danny Aiken writes this in his commentary on Titus. He says, we exercise sweet reasonableness out of a life of wisdom that refuses to hold a grudge and that also gives others the benefit of the doubt. And I thought, you know what, let's just pause here for a moment this morning and consider this quote as he's commenting on this text. Let me ask you this question. How would your life be different? And catch these two words. If in wisdom... You refused. So if in wisdom, you refused. If in wisdom, we as the church refuse to hold a grudge. And if in wisdom, we refused to think poorly about others, but rather always gave others the benefit of the doubt. Now let me just, I, I have to admit this, I am pretty skeptical. Now, commenting to my wife this week, I was like, I, I got, I've, I've got to exercise this because I'm preaching it on Sunday. But just think for a second. If in wisdom, we as the church, we as believers, in a, in a crazy world, we chose every single day to malign no one, that we refused to hold a grudge, and we gave the benefit of the doubt to others, that we came across. Aiken goes on and he says this, the regenerate person or the born-again believer refuses to cultivate and then exercise verbal or physical abuse. I think it shows a tremendous lack of self-control in the one who exercises verbal or physical abuse, and oftentimes it's easy to address or see that type of abuse. But then how you, you look and you say, okay, to cultivate... Being one who cultivates this type of thing, I think, is just as dangerous. One who cultivates is one who prepares the ground in order to foster growth. And I would argue this morning that a Christian should never be one who prepares the soil for harsh words or actions to take root. God, may it be said of us as believers at the First Baptist Church of Columbia, South Carolina, that we are not a people that cultivates or prepares the soil in our lives or the lives of those around us for harsh words or actions to take root. So if we are called to malign no one, then what should be on our lips? Listen to these passages of Scripture that I think speak to this. Proverbs 13.3 says that the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. Job 27, 4 says, My lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Colossians 4, 6, 
Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. And my favorite one, I make this a prayer. Psalm 141.3 Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. Hey, Titus, remind the people in Crete to speak carefully for the sake of the gospel. And he goes on and he says that we're called to show kindness, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration to all men. Listen to this description of these folks. It's not apt or disposed to quarrel in any often petty manner. An ill-natured readiness to fight without good cause. So let's don't be like that. This person is one who exhibits an often perverse and wearisome tendency, even a fondness for arguing, quarreling, and disrupting. You usually know who these folks are, and I would add to that, and we try to stay as far away from them as we possibly can, because this doesn't describe the type of person who is ready to do every good work. When we live lives that are transformed and rooted in the gospel, here's what we do as we show kindness. We put others before ourselves in humility. This idea of humility can be defined as a conscience placing of others ahead of ourselves. It's an attitude and action esteeming others to be better than ourselves. This is what Paul means when he writes in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves and don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We realize that that's not enough, and that's why Paul went on and wrote verses 5 through 7. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. See, this is the gospel in us. This is the fruit of the Spirit in us. It's the ability to see that without taking on the attitude of Jesus, without the Spirit moving and working in us, that we can do nothing that's pleasing to God. We have the attitude of Christ Jesus who didn't think that while being God that He should deserve, or He should have all the benefits that He deserved while He was God. We take on the form of of a servant. We're ready to do every good deed. We show kindness and humility as we serve. We do this in the face of a culture that doesn't understand our why. Matthew Henry writes, the glory of a man is to pass over a transgression. It's the duty of a reasonable and therefore certainly of a Christian man whose reason is improved and advanced by religion, such may not and will not presently fall foul on the one who is offended, but like God, be slow to anger and ready to forgive. See, this is the type of behavior that turns heads in a pagan society. So Titus, Paul writes, remind them to show kindness for the sake of the gospel. And then we move on and we see in verse 3 that Paul provides an interesting Argument. Listen to what he says. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful 
hating one another. It's like Paul gives what should be a glimpse in the rearview mirror saying, hey, listen, this is who we were. This is how foolish we were. Look at what sin produced in our lives. Disobedience. We were deceived. We were enslaved to lust and passion. We were full of malice and envy. We were hateful. This is what we produce on our own. But then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. And then God showed up in all of His love and all of His kindness and look at what God did. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We see in this verse what kindness is, what love is, what humility is. That we understand as Christians that we are equipped, we are called to show this because it has been shown to us. And I think it's important for us this morning to consider just that. What God has done for us. To understand the gospel. To understand that if we have been saved by grace through faith, then we're able to participate and anticipate what he's going to do as we continually yield ourselves to him. And so let me ask you a few questions as I close this morning. As we think about what our next step is. Consider if we're ready for what tomorrow brings. To whom will you submit tomorrow and each day after that? Who will you serve each day? How will you speak each day? How will you act each day? Understanding that all these things, as we do so under the power of the Holy Spirit, all of these things demonstrate the power of God to transform sinners like us, to make us more like Himself. And we do all these things for the glory of God and for the advancement of His kingdom. Father God, we thank You so much this morning for the opportunity to consider Your Word. God, I thank You for these students. I thank You for this church. And I thank you for the opportunity, as we consider your word, to respond to it. So God, give us, give us wisdom. Give us boldness to respond. Give us, give us maturity to do the right thing. And to make much of you as we move from this place and take our next steps. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel that saves. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. And as you stand, the choir is going to sing and give you an opportunity to respond. Perhaps you're not in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that. Pastor West would love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you join us here. Or perhaps you'd just like to make these steps and altar and commit something to God. You respond as the Spirit leads.